Well, uh, hey, grab your Bibles um, or turn them on and turn with me to Isaiah 42 in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42. For the next, uh, for the month of December, we're starting a new sermon series um, that uh, is our Advent series that we're going to be looking at the four servant songs of Isaiah. Today we'll be in Isaiah 42. Next week we'll be in Isaiah 49. We'll spend a week in Isaiah 50, and then we'll wrap it up in Isaiah 52 and 53. The reason these are called servant songs is because they are poems that reference a special ideal servant who accomplishes God's purposes for Israel and the entire world. And so I'm going to flesh that out here in a second, but we're also calling this series The New Horizon. Now, when you think of the horizon, I know for me, my mind goes to the beach. The horizon is pretty clear. You've got the where the earth and the water meets, and I typically think of the sunrise. Some of the you know most beautiful, majestic, as you think of a horizon, the sun rising over the beach. So you know we think of that that terminology as we think of that horizon. We also think about this metaphorically when we think about horizons. For instance, like there's a snowstorm on the horizon. If you haven't heard, we talk about this, right? Like, what do we mean by that? It's something that, man, it's going to snow. It's bound to happen. Like, it is imminent. And because of that news, it changes how we live today. Now, I don't know about what your Thanksgiving few days have been like, um, but for me, knowing that there's a snowstorm on the horizon, you know, it's a time to get ready, right? So, you know, you know I've got five kids, and so, you know, there's a number of sleds that we've got to go and uh, we're dusting off, we're getting ready, we're getting our snow shovels out. I got my Home Depot ice salt bucket set up outside so I can scoop and, and make sure nobody slips and falls. But most importantly, we spent a couple hours getting all the leaves up. Um, because I don't know about you guys, but I don't like a dirty snowman. I'm just like, this is just me. And so if it's going to snow, um, the leaves need to be up, and we're going to be playing in it. I don't want leaves messing up my snow. So we spent a couple of hours on Friday. The kids helped me getting our, our leaves up. My point here, when you think about a new horizon, that's information. That is news that ought to change how you live today. And so let me just ask you this as we think about a new horizon. Why do you need a new horizon? Now, we're going to answer that question today, but we're going to come around in a different way. I want to first answer the question, why did Israel need a new horizon? And then we're going to come back and figure out why you and I need a new horizon. So we jump into Isaiah, a book from one of the prophets in the Old Testament. If we're going to talk about um, Israel's new horizon, let me, let me just join me on this journey real quick because if we're going to look about where Israel needed to head, we've got to look backwards and see where they had been. And so let me just set some context for the book of Isaiah for us really quick. And I'm going to go all the way back. It's going to help us set this in context in the very beginning. In creation, Act 1, of the journey. God's people in God's place 
enjoying God's blessing, God's pleasant, God's presence, and God's rest. The world as it was meant to be, no brokenness. God's design, perfect justice. Act two, the fall, Genesis three, Adam and Eve rebel. They reject God as king, and as a result, they are exiled out of the land, out of the place of God's presence and blessing. And instead of facing his blessing, they face his curse. Tragic. But death and curse are not the end of the story, as you guys know. All the way back in Genesis 3, God promises through the offspring of a woman that he is going to bring redemption. He is going to reverse the effects of the fall. And so we start trekking this story, and we go from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. That's the context here. That's where we get to Israel. God has chosen these people. He has chosen Israel to be his means by which he is going to be bring blessing to the world. Genesis 12, why does he choose Abraham? I'm going to bless you, and those who bless you, I'm going to bless, and those who curse you, I'm going to curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, when we think about Israel's horizon, it started out really bright. When you end up with Jacob and Israel, you, you remember this story of how God brings Israel out of Egypt. He provides for them there, but then they get driven into slavery. And so God raises up one of his servants, Moses. And he sends Moses. And he, God gives his law to Moses. And God's bringing them out where? To his promised land, the place of God's presence, of God's blessing. It started out very bright. But as you know, the story of the Old Testament is that Israel over and over and over again fails to keep God's commands. And Israel, just like Adam and Eve, are going to be exiled out of the land to face God's judgment and curse. So when we come on the scene in Isaiah, back in August, I preached a sermon on the story of the Old Testament, and we talked about the prophets. And I said, when you read the prophets, you're going to hear judgment. You're going to hear them calling out, hey, you have not kept God's commands. You've rejected God as king. You've gone and chased after idols. And as a result, there's judgment. You're going to face God's curse. And that's where Isaiah faces. That's what Israel faces. But the prophets don't end there. The prophets also share a message of hope. You see, Israel, when we come to Isaiah 42... Isaiah is addressing Israel, a people in despair. The immediate horizon for Israel is judgment and exile. And that's pretty clear. You go read through Isaiah. And, and Israel's wrestling with these questions. Has God been defeated by the Babylonian gods? Has, has our sin made a mockery of God's promises? Would we ever return from the land 
to be in the place of God, the presence of God, enjoy the blessing and rest of God. Would the temple ever be restored? Was there any hope on the horizon? Isaiah's answer is yes, there's hope. But he makes this one thing clear. Israel simply returning to live back in the land is not going to bring lasting hope. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands. They were exiled. God chose Israel. They've disobeyed God's commands. They're going to be exiled. It's not just simply Israel returning to the land. It's, it's this hope of a servant within Israel. And it's because of God sending the servant that there can be hope for Israel. And so over the next four weeks, the reason we're going to be looking at the servant songs is because it is through this servant that Israel's hope of a new horizon rests. And their hope is going to be the same hope that is for me and that is for you. It is through this servant who is the one that's going to make it possible for us to return to the garden in place of God's presence, blessing, and rest. And so with that context, let's read Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The first question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. Who is this servant? Who is this servant? Now let me just give you a few preliminary observations here. I want you to note just the language. Look at verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, we see in verse 1 he's, a, he's addressing his servant. God is presenting his servant, and he's he. That, that, that word he, he will bring forth justice. He will not cry aloud. Verse 4, he will not grow faint. 
But we have a transition in verses 6 and 7 from God presenting this servant to God directly addressing this servant. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you. Do you see that? Now, I don't know if in your Bible you have a little footnote there. On mine, I've got the footnote 4. And I look down at the bottom and it tells me this. The Hebrew for you is singular four times in this verse. So he's not here speaking, you, Israel, plural, you, singular, an individual. So in the first four verses, God's presenting this servant. In, in the latter part here, he's directly addressing his servant. Now, when we talk about the servant songs, most people agree that the actual official servant song is verses 1 through 4, um, where God's presenting his servant. Um, but we're reading all the way through verse 9. As we'll see, um, there's definitely parallels in figuring out who this servant is. Now, one other observation before we jump in is also this. Verse 1 begins with this word, behold. Behold my servant. Now, I know we've just kind of jumped into the middle of Isaiah. So as I'm trying to help us out here, if we go back to Isaiah 41, in fact, this whole section of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, 40 through 66, 66 is, is really a page is turning, and we start to hear more of this picture of hope for what God's going to do. If we were to go back to chapter 40, we would see actually in the New Testament, it's, it's referenced in Jesus saying, hey, that's John the Baptist. He's the one that's preparing the way for the Lord. But if we go back to chapter 41 here, we see this word behold show up a few times in verse 24 of chapter 41, it says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you. Here, he's referring to the idols that are so prevalent. In Israel, in many cases, had turned to idolatry. He's calling the idols nothing and worthlessness. And then we see the word behold show up in verse 29 as well. Look at chapter 41, verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Here, he's referring to the idol-worshiping nations. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So here's the context. The context is Israel and the nations who had turned to idolatry. And now he's turning in chapter 42, behold my servant. In contrast to the idols where there's worthlessness, there's nothing, there's empty wind, my servant, the one whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Look at these descriptions here. My servant whom I uphold, the success of this servant will be the result of God's strength. This servant is God's chosen one in whom his soul delights. So in contrast to the abomination of the idols, this servant is one that has the delight of the Lord. And then it says this, I will put my spirit upon him. God will put his spirit, his power in this servant. So in contrast with verse 29, this empty wind of the idols, this servant is going to be full of God's power. This servant is designated and this servant is equipped for his mission. So who is this servant? Initially, 
we would assume that this servant is, is being referred to as Israel. Why would we make that conclusion? Well, turn back with me, and actually I've got it on the, on the, on the screen here. Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. In the, the very previous chapter, we see Israel referred to as the servant. Look at verse 8 here in Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen. Do you hear the linguistic parallels here? You've got this servant, you've got this chosen one, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Look at verse 9. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. So we come to Isaiah 42, and who is this servant? Our initial implication is to identify the servant with Israel because that's who Isaiah has identified this servant with. Now, while that's true, that Israel's often identified as God's servant, and, and if you were to continue reading in 42, 43, I mean, read through 40, the, 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 the passage Tanner is going to preach next week. It's going to mention to Israel as the servant. But there are clues throughout the text that Isaiah is suggesting that this servant is not just Israel as a whole, but a specific person within Israel who is distinct from the whole. Why do we know that? Well, these four servant songs, th these are like four reasons why. Now, I'm not going to jump into the other three servant songs because we'll get actually reasons the next four weeks as we look into these. But that's why we're looking at these servant songs. They're identifying this servant that's within Israel but seems to be separate from the whole. But I would say the biggest issue with Israel as this servant is what we know about Israel. I mean, why does Israel need a new horizon in the first place? Because they've rejected God as king and are running and chasing after idols. So like, Israel is not this blameless servant. If you, to, if you were to read through, continue to read through, you'll see Israel in Isaiah 42 as, ident as identified as blind. Israel failed to keep God's law. Israel has done much injustice. I'm not going to go back to chapter 1, um, but in chapter 1, like this judgment that Isaiah is laying against them is the injustice that, that Israel had done. So, so think about it. Israel, who's now done much injustice, is she going to be the one who now brings justice? Or Israel is the one being exiled out of the land. How is she now going to be the one who like saves herself. Now, when we, when we put this in the context of all of Scripture, we're reminded that at significant times in Israel's history, God has raised up servants. We've already mentioned Moses, one of God's servants. We could go back and we could think about Joshua. We could think about David, who have who have represented and led Israel as a nation in the same way that this servant is going to do. And so one commentator concludes this. The servant in Isaiah 42 
seems then to reflect what Israel was meant to be, as well as characteristics of the nation's representative deliverer, through whom that ideal will be attained. And so, as we ask this question, who is who is this servant? I think our first inclination is to say, hey, this servant is Israel, or this is one that's going to come from Israel. But as we look to the New Testament, we see this servant is identified with none other than Jesus Christ. And In fact, before we jump to the New Testament, I want to show you a few other parallel passages in Isaiah that, that reference this servant. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah 11, I think we've got it on the screen here. This is a passage that Tanner preached recently. Jesus, our banner. And it starts off with this, Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we could continue. This one, now this servant, is connected with these Davidic promises. God had made this promise to David that there's going to be a king that's going to come from him and rule forever. And so what we're seeing now in Isaiah is that this servant is a kingly servant, and later on we're going to see this kingly servant is also going to be a suffering servant. Another parallel text is in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, some have suggested that Isaiah 61 may be like the fifth servant song. Now, it's not one of the servant songs because it doesn't have the servant language and terminology there, but we see the parallels. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You see, as we read through Isaiah We see that this servant, the one whom the Lord has chosen, the one whom the Lord upholds, the one whom that God has put his spirit upon, is not just Israel as a whole, but a unique person within Israel. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus stepping onto the scenes. In fact, that Isaiah 61 passage in Luke 4, Jesus reads that. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled. We could look at some other parallel texts. When you look at Jesus' baptism, when Jesus was baptized, Matthew 3 describes it this way, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You you hear this Isaiah 42 terminology? You've got that spirit coming upon him. You have the Lord saying, this is the one whom I delight. This is the one with whom I'm pleased. At the transfiguration, Luke 9 says this, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. As we read through descriptions of Jesus' life, 
We see Mark 10 describe him this way. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then finally, if you were to go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, he pulls his disciples aside. And it says this in verse 15. Jesus aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And right there, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, are quoted with explicit reference. Jesus is fulfilling this. So who is this servant? This servant is Israel, but in particularly, this is one who was come from Israel. This is Jesus. He's, he's the one who offers the world hope for a new horizon. He's the one who was going to usher in the return from exile and lead us into the new creation where all who trust him can enjoy God's presence and blessing and rest. But what was his mission? If we know who the servant is, what was his mission? Going back to Isaiah 42. You see a word repeatedly show up here in these first four verses. This servant was designated, this servant was equipped, and this servant was given a mission. In 42 verse 1, where it says, I will put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He has established justice in the earth. What is justice? If you were to look linguistically, you would see this word justice as closely paralleled with another word that we talk about often called righteousness. When we think of justice, biblical justice refers to the world as it was meant to be. And I'll give you two kind of phrases to think about this. On one hand, the world as it was meant to be a right relationship between the creator and creation. There's justice. We, we think about this when we think of spiritual forgiveness and health. I'm going to show us a text here in a second. But like justice in the sense that there's, there's forgiveness and there's spiritual healing. We also think of justice, and on the flip side there, we could think of punishment for evildoers, right? That there's the opportunity for, for forgiveness and healing, but we also think of justice in the sense of all of the evil that's been done. God has made right that, that there is like, the injustices of the world are not just going to go unnoticed by God. In the New Testament, he challenges us in Romans 12. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You love your enemy and do good to them. But it's this picture that God is a God of justice. He sees all, and there will be even punishment for evildoers. So we think of like a right relationship between the creator and creation. We also think of right relationships with each other including the proper distribution of goods and honor. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me go to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, and I want to read verses 16 through 18. I've got it on the screen here. 
for us. This is in that, in that section where, where Isaiah is just laying out this initial judgment on Israel. And he says this in verse 16. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, though they are like red crimson, they shall be like wool. I see both of these elements here. In, in the latter half of the verse, you see a, a right relationship between the creator and creation, right? You see this opportunity for forgiveness. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Like I can be in a right relationship with God. Now we know this servant is the one who makes that happen. This servant is the one who, who not only lives a perfect life, who completely follows God's law, but he goes to the cross. I mean, when we talk about Christmas and Advent, we're talking about the coming, the incarnation of Christ as a baby. But we know that he came as a mission, and part of that mission, one of the ways he brings about justice and reconciling us to God is through not just his perfect life, but through his sacrificial death. Now, the fourth servant song, I'll leave some of that. Tanner will flesh out for us. But that's where we start hearing about this servant as the suffering servant who was going to be crushed so that we don't have to be crushed. Who's going to shed his blood so that we can be white as snow. But in this passage, we also see in Isaiah 1, this reconciliation or a, a right relationship like horizontally. We talk about a, a vertical, but we talk about horizontal. Look how it starts. He said, Stop doing this evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He's looking around and he's seeing a world that's full of things that's not the way they're supposed to be. And you and I see it every day. There's injustice in your work. There's injustice in, with your neighbors. There's injustice in your city. There, like, there's all kind of injustice that's happening. The world is not the way it's meant to be. You may be here today, and you're like, the reason I need a new horizon, because I'm facing, this is described, like, I'm living this. Is there any hope for me? When we think of Jesus and a new horizon, this is why he came, and this is why he gives us hope. It's not just a vertical relationship with God. It's also in Christ when his kingdom comes, Jesus. Think about what he did with his life. He said, let the children come to me. He healed. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He healed the lame. The outcast. Those are the ones he wanted to be around. Those that were shamed by society. That's what the gospel's about. That's what the new horizon's about. It's about justice. So how does this servant bring about justice? Go back to Isaiah 42. Verses 1 through 6, 7, we see it fleshing out here, how he goes about bringing forth justice. We see in verse 2, 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus will not come forcefully, but in gentleness. If we were to go dig into Matthew 12, which we don't have time today, where he explicitly references Isaiah 42, and he says, this is fulfilled. What he's describing is Jesus going about in a way that was contrary to the way many people expected him to come. Jesus didn't, he came, he didn't come as the typical first century rabbinical expectations. The Messiah, the Messiah was not going to arrive with political agendas, military campaigns, and great fanfare. He was going to come with gentleness and meekness. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What do we mean here? A bruised reed was used by shepherds to fashion a small musical instrument. If it was cracked or torn, it was useless. A faintly burning wick, think about this, that was useless for giving light. You've got like, I'm going to use my little candle here. This isn't bringing us much light here today, right? But I mean, you think of a faintly burning wick, like, man, just go ahead and put it out. Like, it, it's not serving any purpose. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. when my kingdom's coming, I'm not going to break the bruised reed. What's he saying here? These two represent the weak and the oppressed, people deemed useless by the world. So John MacArthur concludes this, Christ's work was to restore and rekindle such people, not to break them. This speaks of his tender compassion toward the lowliest of the lost. The Lord's servant will not crush the weak. The Lord's servant will defend the weak. And if we're calling ourselves followers of this servant, this ought to shape our life. We ought to be people that are not trying to live a comfortable life. We're people that are saying, God, give me the weak. Bring the weak and the lowliest, and I want to display what you're bringing as justice for them. He won't crush the weak. He'll defend them. And then in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He will not give up, but he will accomplish his mission. What we see here in verse 4, that there are hints that Jesus or this servant is going to face resistance. Jesus' mission was not an easy mission. But even in spite of the resistance that he was going to face, he was going to be unweakened by the demands of this mission. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. And then we jump on to, chapter, to, to verse 6, when the Lord is directly addressing this servant. And he says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. As a covenant, we see, first of all, for Israel. Like, I don't want to overlook that, that this servant was coming for Israel, to save Israel. This is why when you go to the New Testament, you hear like Paul saying, Man, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Like, like God was sending this servant to save Israel, but what we see here with this language, a light for the nations, is a widening of the scope of salvation to include the world. 
a light for the nations. We already saw hints of this already. Look in chapter 42, verse 1. He will bring forth justice to who? The nations. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. This language here, the coastlands, refers to the lands surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, and they represent the remotest peoples of the earth. It's this picture that justice is not just coming for Israel, but Jesus is the one, this servant is the one that is the hope of the world. He is the only hope for a truly just world. He's a covenant for the people. He's a light for the nations. And this language here, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from dungeon. What he's describing here is that their physical oppression and bondage is an image for the spiritual liberation and freedom that Jesus was going to bring. They were being exiled. They were being captive. They, 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 were, they were being thrown into dungeons. They may not have seen light for days, for weeks. He is the one that's going to open their eyes, and he is going to liberate and bring them freedom. And so what is the point of Isaiah 42? It's this. Jesus is the promised servant who brings justice to the world. And so that leaves us with one last question. How should we respond? If Israel, God's chosen people, needed God's servant, how much more you and I? As Israel was challenged to look forward, I mean, think, put yourself in Isaiah's time. Look forward. There's coming a day. There's a horizon. Look out there. There's a light. The sun of the light of the world is coming. You look forward and by faith believe that I'm going to send this one who's going to bring justice. We now stand on the other side of history looking back. God has sent Jesus. That's what Christmas is about. And we are to believe in him. The new horizon for Israel and for us is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you read through the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' birth, you come, one of my favorites is in Luke chapter 2. And this is after Jesus had been born, and his parents, they're bringing him to the temple um, to fulfill what was spoken of in the law. They were, they were to bring him to present him before the Lord. And, and the Scriptures say there was a man whose name was Simeon at the temple. And this is what the scriptures say about Simeon. It says, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He, I imagine Simeon as a guy who had read Isaiah 42, who knew that God was going to send his servant. He was praying. He was longing. He, he had eyes of expectation. That was, it was looking across the horizon. There was anticipation. There was expectation. And imagine this day when Jesus is brought to the temple and placed in his hands. And this is what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart 
and peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. How should we respond? Would you be like Simeon who longed to see the light of justice come? Like a desire, like the one who was longing for the first coming of Christ. I think in one sense, we look back, but we're also longing for the second coming of Christ. We stand in between two comings right now. Jesus has come. He has inaugurated. And in a lot of ways, he's bringing justice now. And he's using his church to be a part of, of justice coming on this earth. But we know that ultimate justice still waits the second return of Christ, where we will step into a new heaven and a new earth, the place of God, the presence of God, the blessing of God, and join the rest of God. And we would long for that day the way Simeon longed for that first coming. Are you overcome with despair today? As we think of the snowstorm that's on the horizon, you may think of the horizon of your life as a dark storm cloud. What I want you to hear today is that no matter if you are blind, no matter if you are enslaved, imprisoned, no matter if you are oppressed or weak, the servant is the hope for you today. Would you come to him in faith, trusting in God's promises? Christmas is a time to draw near to the light of justice and let that light shine through you as you wait for his return. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the world today, there's much injustice that we see. But God, we want to be one like Simeon, who believed your promises. God, that we see you've sent your servant, Jesus, the perfect servant, who's perfectly kept your law who's come that we might know you, we might be freed from sin, that, that we might have the hope of eternal life, that we might have the hope of a world where it's the way it was meant to be. God, help us to walk in faith and trust today. God, I pray also, God, there's so much injustice that we see in the world, and you want to use us as means and vessels to display your justice so God, empower, as you empowered your servant, God, I pray, would you empower your servants who are following you, filled with your spirit, that we would, we would proclaim this news, that, that the widening scope of salvation would go to South Asia, where the Smiths are serving. God, we want to see it spread to the, the coastlands, to the ends of the earth, that the nations would worship. But God, we also want to very tangible ways display justice through caring for the fatherless, the orphan, the weak, the oppressed. 
God, would you help us to not be comfortable with a comfortable life, but to look for the hard people around us and be drawn to them to love and serve them because that's who you are and that's your heartbeat. Give us compassion for those kinds of people. God, we pray in Christ's name, amen.